Fish Bites with new theme music. Eli Sussman here, managing editor of Fish Stripes, with an earlier than usual release of the podcast this week to digest all the recent Miami Marlins moves and to preview the 2018 MLB winter meetings beginning Sunday night in San Diego. The Marlins got a lot of their business started prematurely this week heading into the winter meetings, acquiring a couple new players, getting rid of a couple familiar places, and making some interesting changes off the field, but nonetheless, when you get to the winter meetings, you have all the significant people in the baseball industry under one roof. Um, It's a recipe for a lot of action, and at the very least, a lot of very compelling rumors. Negotiating head-to-head, bidding for the services of the top available players, and it's the ideal time to throw really crazy ideas against the wall, either in privately or to leak it to the public just to get their sentiment by going through insider reporters. It's it's a fun time. It's a fun few days of the winter meetings coming up, and we wanted to set the stage for those meetings. Uh, the Marlins have a lot of business still left to do for their building their best possible roster for 2020 and setting things up beyond that. Some of that stuff could happen during the winter meetings. They may not wait until after the new year. If you're not already, please subscribe to Fish Stripes on your preferred podcast provider, Apple, Google, Spotify, anything else. We're available there. All the episodes of Fish Bites, as well as Earning Their Stripes, our minor league specific show. I'm already mulling around the idea of adding yet another show to the same podcast feed for 2020. As I get closer to a decision on that, uh, I'll be sure to clue you guys in. But that stuff will all be available in the same usual places on the podcast feed. On the website, fishstripes.com, everything published there with um, some additional uh, analysis and context for those new episodes. You can find all that on the website, promoted on our social media feeds, at Fish Stripes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So however you choose to engage with us, I greatly appreciate it. Two new faces that are going to figure very prominently in what the team does this next season, Jesus Aguilar, Jonathan VR. Acquired on Monday by the Marlins from the Rays and the Orioles, respectively. Both those guys, veteran players. They've had success in the major leagues very recently. And both of them charismatic on the field and in the clubhouse. Players that will make this team better. Players that are more expensive than most of the guys that were already under contract. And let's talk about how they fit in with this Marlins team moving forward. Aguilar claimed off waivers from the Rays. He's going to be arbitration eligible for the first time this coming season, projected by MLB Trade Rumors to earn about $2.5 million in salary in 2020. He's coming off a pretty disappointing year. He got off to a very deep slump with the Brewers early in 2019. I remember pretty vividly that being one of the bigger conversations is what's wrong with Aguilar. It was a combination of some very bad luck and some simple regression from where he was in 2018. That was his all-star year. Got entered into the all-star game um, as one of the leading power hitters in baseball with the Brewers. Got in as a final vote candidate. 
They had a very memorable campaign with the team, we believe, in Jesus, and that was able to uh, energize the fans to vote him into the All-Star game that year. That is probably his ceiling as a player. The Marlins acquiring him, thinking there's the potential that he's a really premium power hitter. And meanwhile, last year is probably a little bit less than you would expect because the 236 batting average, 325 on base, 389 slugging, when you adjust for the era he plays in and the ballparks, uh, moving between leagues, putting it all together, it's an 88 weighted runs created plus where 100 is league average, a significantly below average hitter for a guy that is limited defensively to first base, tipping the scales at about 250 pounds makes it difficult for him to run the bases. So if you're a below average hitter and with those other limitations, it should not be surprising that he was a replacement level player overall. Negative 0.1 wins above replacement according to Fangraphs in 2019. What the Marlins are hoping for is somewhere in between, somewhere in between replacement level and a three-war player. Uh, he's only had that one season in 2018 as a true everyday starter at first base. That's not necessarily what they're going to be committing to to him with the Marlins this year. He's certainly going to come into spring training as a, a shoe-in for the opening day roster, assuming he's not hurt. Remember that active rosters have expanded coming into this next season from 25 to 26 players, which gives, um, and that will mean an extra position player on the roster compared to last year. Last year, uh, pretty much every segment of the season, they had a 12 active position player limit. There were some, there were brief stretches where the Marlins were limited to 11 position players, and now Don Mattingly is going to have more flexibility moving forward. You don't necessarily need to have all these guys that are perfectly well-rounded, and that's good for Aguilar because he is a very exciting player to watch. When he squares up the ball, he really crushes it. Some of the stuff that kind of sneaks under the radar. Tip pitch to the at-bat, and he gets into this one. A long one and gone. Jesus Aguilar has belted his ninth home run of the year. One thing that is somewhat surprising in a good way, based on my perception of Aguilar versus the reality, is that he's a really adequate defensive first baseman. Despite being pretty heavy set and uh, limiting his flexibility, he is very sure-handed at first base. And consistently over the past couple years, in the eyes of defensive runs saved, he's been average or slightly better than average as a first baseman regardless of the shape of his body he is fundamentally sound at first base and even though he doesn't give you that flexibility again you don't necessarily need everybody to be flexible on this roster moving forward considering the change in rules where you're able to carry one more position player than in years past and he is a guy though that on days where he's in the starting lineup you're not going to really remove him for a defensive replacement. Just looking at the Marlins' projected roster as it stands right now, he is the best defensive first baseman on the roster. They gave Austin Dean some opportunities at adjusting to that in down the stretch last year in September. Garrett Cooper played a lot of first base this past season. That is his primary position, uh, but Cooper is uh, not necessarily as good as Aguilar is defensively. That may surprise you, even though Cooper is um, a slimmer down person. He has slightly more range by virtue of being taller, but Aguilar is perfectly fine at that position. As mentioned before, the drawback is going to be 
in his base running, where in terms of sprint speed, he's one of the slower players in the league. He's not going to be stealing bases whatsoever. There are some limitations there. Uh, so most of it is going to come down to him continuing to being steady defensively. For a guy that turns 30 early next season, that's not a sure thing. Defense is a young man's game, and you don't know what an extra year may do to him in the field. And there is some question as to exactly what he's going to be at the plate. He should be better than he was this past year, but expecting him to be the same player he was in 2018 as an all-star, I don't think that's a high probability of occurring. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been placed on waivers by the Rays. The Rays are a team, obviously, that has been contending the past couple years and heading into 2020 trying to contend. And they had Aguilar under control for the next couple years via arbitration projected to earn just two and a half million dollars that's a very digestible price for a guy if you think he is a borderline all-star caliber player but clearly that was not the view uh, around the league this is a guy that was not claimed by some other american league teams that was why he was able to get to the marlins in the first place so those should give you some pause the fact that a smart organization like the rays that is in the middle of contending and had him under control felt that he was expendable. That is somewhat of a red flag to throw up as to what making you reconsider what Aguilar's true value is and to try to approximate what he'll be at the plate. If he's not going to be in 2018 form, uh, are we sure he's going to bounce back from 2019? Keep in mind, the Marlins gave up a lot to get Lewin Diaz in a trade from the Twins last July. He's a very well-rounded first-base prospect, had a huge year overall between high A, double A, and the Dominican Winter League. He projects as being a full-time player at that position, and the message that the Marlins have been sending out with this whole off-season plan is to get better for 2020 without blocking any of these potential impact prospects. That includes Diaz, that includes some of their key pitchers just added to the 40-man roster, like Sixto Sanchez, Nick Neidert. It includes outfielders, Jesus Sanchez and uh, Monte Harrison, the electric shortstop, Jazz Chisholm. At almost every position, they have really intriguing players that are going to begin 2020 in the high minor league levels. The small opening that they have is at the beginning of the year, on opening day, and probably all the way up to the trade deadline. That's where they can add some veteran players that are still relatively close to their prime, like Aguilar is. If, for example, Lewin Diaz progresses really well in AA and AAA to begin the year, he makes a very strong case that he's ready for the big leagues before 2020 is up, then Aguilar becomes a prime trade candidate. He got traded last year from the Brewers in the middle of the year, and he can find himself in the same situation where he gets squeezed out by a team that has very good internal options, and the Marlins recoup whatever they can for him, considering that they were able to acquire him for basically nothing from the Rays. He was placed on waivers, and getting anything in return should they trade him in the future, that puts them in positive overall in terms of assets gained and lost surrounding this particular player. Uh, with Aguilar, he doesn't have any clear platoon splits in his career. Very similar production against lefties and righties. Gets on base a little bit more against lefties. Um, the peripherals are a little better against lefties. So you imagine that there'll be a significant platoon situation going on where he starts uh, 
almost across the board every time that they face a left-handed pitcher, occasionally versus righties, but they could use someone like Garrett Cooper at that position. We'll see if Austin Dean even makes the opening day roster. Uh, but they have other options at first base. Even Miguel Rojas played a little bit of first base in each of the last couple years, meaning that if Aguilar is not red hot or if early in the year he is showing those pretty significant platoon splits, you could keep him in situations where he's more likely to succeed, and that would be against left-handed pitching. During games in which Aguilar isn't in the starting lineup, then you have him available off the bench for pinch-hitting opportunities. Remember last year, a lot of those went to Neil Walker, Martin Prado, Curtis Granderson, all well-respected veterans in the clubhouse who have accomplished a lot in this game, but they were just so far removed from the primes of their careers that they weren't effective players anymore. Granderson, the only one of the bunch that had some significant power potential, and he wasn't able to show it nearly often enough. Aguilar is the type of player that they simply didn't have last year because he is that intimidating presence to come off the bench someone that when he is locked in he's useful against both lefties and righties he can handle high velocity low velocity everything in between and that's what the marlins are hoping for such a low risk acquisition because they are just claiming him and again a good scenario for the organization would be if lewin diaz forces himself up which would force aguilar out but the more likely scenario probably is that Lewin is not ready until the very end of the year and maybe push back into 2021 as the Marlins seek to add team control over him. And that makes Aguilar such a great placeholder. And for whatever reason, if he if he exceeds our most optimistic projections, then he is uh, retainable via arbitration for another year, um, which would make him either... Uh, potentially throws a wrench in all the plans that they had moving forward at first base. And if not, if everything is lined up well, if he plays well and Lewin Diaz plays well, then Aguilar becomes a very appealing trade option a year from now during the next offseason. Either way, it's, it's such an easy opportunity for the Marlins to come out ahead when you look at the total assets, considering that they got him for virtually nothing, and uh, he can positively impact the team in more ways than one. Make sure to check out a brief interview that we have with Jesus Aguilar on fishstripes.com that was done recently. He seemed very excited to join this team, calling it an opportunity that every player wants. Aguilar reunites with his former teammate, Jonathan Villar. They were together with the Milwaukee Brewers for a couple years, and Villar is now a Marlin as well after being acquired via trade from Baltimore in exchange for minor league left-hander Easton Lucas. Lucas being a late-round draft pick in 2019. He played the summer at Batavia, uh, made a decent impression on folks, but was he's buried very deep in this pitching-rich organization. So he was expendable for the Marlins. This is more or less a glorified salary dump, considering that VR was coming off a big year for Baltimore, slashing 274, 339, 453, a 107 weighted runs created plus, a great base running and a versatile defense up the middle between second base and shortstop. He added together and he was a four win player by both baseball reference and fan grass. Four wins above replacement for a guy that played every single game as well and was a really exciting guy to follow. He is 28 years old and someone in the prime of his career. 
with one more year remaining under team control. Uh, the impetus for the Orioles to trade him just seems to be the big pay raise that he was due by virtue of playing so much and stealing 40 bases. Those kind of counting stats really build towards your value when you go in front of an arbitration panel. So he is due, in the estimation of MLB trade rumors, over $10 million in salary this coming year before potentially going into free agency the following year. I'm going to summarize an article that I wrote on Fish Stripes published this past Friday, specifically about VR's base running. Already just mentioned, stole 40 bases last year. Uh, the Marlins as a team only stole 55. Uh, what I wanted to point out in the article is various different aspects of base running that VR provides and what makes him different from really anybody that they already had in their organization. VR led all of baseball in 2019 with 10.5 base running runs last season. That's compared to league average, according to Fangraphs. The Marlins as a team had negative 23.9 base running runs, which is one of the worst team totals in National League history. Base running runs, it takes into account what you do, obviously, as a base dealer, but also running the bases on any live ball in play, uh, how you avoid double plays that we, we sometimes take for granted, the players that can break up double plays or, or beat them out. So it tries to take all that into consideration, compares it to league average. With VR being 10.5 runs above average, that's um, approximately a full win for a team. So of his four wins above replacement as a player, uh, a quarter of that comes solely from what he did as a base runner once he's already on base. Uh, compared to other qualified batters in the league this past year, there's such a big chasm between VR and everybody else. He was really lapping the field as a base runner. 10.5 BSR. Uh, the next closest was Malik Smith of the Mariners and old friend Christian Yelich of the Brewers, both of them at 8.5 runs above average. And the difference between VR and them, which is two full runs, is the same as the distance between second place and eighth place in the major leagues. Eighth place being Trey Turner at 6.5. VR was just exceptional compared to everybody else. You look back historically in the total that he reached at 10.5 BSR, you only see that about once a year on average across baseball. And it was easily a career high from him. So I'll preface it by saying that, that this was a career year for him in several different ways, and especially as a base runner. So you don't necessarily bet on him replicating that. And it's worth noting that the Orioles are run by disciples of the Houston Astros organization. Just like the Rays, this is an organization that is trying to establish themselves as being smart and very efficient, and there should always be some skepticism when a, an organization run like that that is very heavily based in analytics if they find that a player that seems valuable, um, if they find him to be expendable, then it just makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit about whether maybe the team is just being cheap. I think that's been the popular opinion here, that the Orioles are just being cheap and being stupid, and the Marlins can take advantage of that. But it, it just gives you a little bit of pause that they decided to get rid of this guy who was one of their faces of the organization as the roster was currently constructed. Anyway, getting back to the Marlins, they struggled so much on the bases last year. By far the worst base running value of any team in the majors, one of the worst in National League history. And why that's so incredible is that they just didn't get on base very much in the first place. How can you be 
such a historically bad base running team if you only got on base with a 298 clip as a team. They are, in fact, the only team in Major League Baseball history that had a base running value that low while having a sub-300 on-base percentage. It's a combination that's never happened before. Some of that has to do with the personnel that they had. Some of it has to do, you have to imagine, with the coaching and some of the decisions and the signs that they were giving to their players. So you got to question that judgment as well. Um, later on in the year, they had some very interesting base runners emerge, such as John Birdie. He only played about half the season in the major leagues and yet uh, accounted for six and a half base running runs. Scaled over an entire season, John Birdie would have been right up there with VR as one of the best base runners in baseball. We had touched on briefly, Monte Harrison is one of the prospects waiting in the wings for the Marlins. He has been extremely efficient running the bases throughout his minor league career, and that's something that could translate very well in the major leagues. He should be up early in the 2020 season, improving the Marlins in that category. Magnaris Sierra could be the speediest out of all these guys. He is out of minor league options, and barring a trade, he will be on the opening day roster as well. So you consider the veterans that departed via free agency and you have these speedy guys that are as currently projected going to play larger roles in the team than they did last year and there would be a lot of internal improvement from the marlins nonetheless if they want to go from being the worst base running team to being uh, having that being a strength of the team they needed to make acquisitions like vr he should have a very substantial individual impact uh, because he does things differently. He does things that um, basically nobody else on the Marlins do. Since 2016, the beginning of the Don Mattingly era, the Marlins have stolen third base 30 different times. Four years, they've only stolen third on 30 occasions. Since 2016, in that exact same time frame, Jonathan VR, all by himself, has stolen third base 32 times. He has done it more individually than the Marlins as a team have done during the same time span. So it makes you wonder whether Don Mattingly will reconsider some of his base running philosophies. Could he simply just trust VR's track record of being able to do this, get himself an extra 90 feet? Because being in quote-unquote scoring position, it doesn't have the same effect as it used to in baseball, where people are striking out more often than ever. You can't necessarily always bet on a hit scoring a runner from second base, you need more. You sometimes need the, that guy to make some magic happen by himself and get himself all the way to third. And the Marlins have been lacking that type of player in the past, especially the past two years. VR is going to be an exception to that, which is very exciting. On ball, baseball reference shows extra bases taken percentage, which as they describe it is the percentage of time the runner advanced more than one base on a single or more than two bases on double when possible. Last season, Jonathan VR took the extra base 61% of the time. The league average is just 41%, and the Marlins as a team were one of the worst at 36%. There's just another effect right there that he's going to have taking extra bases that you didn't even think about that the Marlins were missing out on in 2019. And what makes all this so interesting to me is that VR is not actually that fast. He's above average uh, according to sprint speed that is tracked by StatCast. He floats between 27.6 and 28 feet per second as a max 
effort sprinter. The league average for sprint speed is about 27 feet per, feet per second, but if you're comparing VR to other players at his position, remember he was at second base and shortstop last year, compared to that, he is almost exactly in line with the league average in terms of the max speed that he's able to get. Um, what makes him able to perform so well despite that is that he accelerates very well off the base or when he's hitting out of the batter's box. Uh, you combine that with the fact that he's a switch hitter. So in most of his plate appearances, he's batting left-handed, which brings him a little bit closer to first base. And I did this fun simulation comparing his home-to-first sprinting to Harold Ramirez and Jorge Alfaro. So those are two guys that, if you watched the Marlins last year, they are great at getting down the line, but they do it as right-handed batters. When VR is running from the left side, his home-to-first time is exactly in line with theirs. So although he is significantly slower at his max, because he's able to accelerate so well, and being that he's batting from the left side and the Marlins were lacking a lot of quality left-handed bats last year, that gives him a little bit of an advantage as well. Year to year, he's a guy that consistently puts up a very high batting average on ground balls because of the way he's able to get out of the box. He beats out a lot of infield hits. So the quality of contact that VR makes isn't always that exceptional, um, but it doesn't matter because he is very fundamentally sound with his legs, and that's just a, a very convenient addition to the Marlins. Which leads to the final question with him, which is what position is VR going to play on the Marlins? Last year, split time between second base and shortstop. Looking at his whole career to date, uh, he spent the vast majority of his defensive innings at just those two positions. Uh, 348 starts at shortstop, 277 starts at second base, only a few dozen starts at any other position. Yet, when president of baseball operations, Michael Hill, uh, commented on the signing publicly, he said that the tentative plan is for VR to play a lot of third base and a lot of outfield, which made me really raise an eyebrow because third base, he's got 48 career starts there, 400 plus innings. Um, for whatever reason, he's committed a very high rate of errors at that position. I'm not someone that gets stuck on errors as any sort of tell as to what your defense value is, but 16 errors and 48 starts, about one every three times that he started a position at the major league level, that's almost unheard of. Worth noting that he played that position several years ago, most of that playing time from 2016, a little bit from 2015. Uh, the head scratcher is the outfield because he only has eight career outfield starts in the majors, uh, those also being several years ago. The Marlins heading into the winter meetings, as we're going to discuss further, they could use another outfield bat in their lineup, and uh, maybe the urgency isn't quite there if they already plan on having VR there. But it is fair to question Marlins' leadership on this decision and why they have conviction that VR will be successful at third base and outfield, despite being utilized there so rarely by his previous teams. They have this one example, the Marlins do, of Brian Anderson converting seamlessly to right field, becoming a good defensive right fielder in 2018, and making progress into being a great defensive right fielder last year, a position that he had barely any background in whatsoever. That was a good adjustment, but there have been some flops in that same, er in that same uh, I guess, the same sort of situation as well, where JT Riddle 
who we're going to discuss coming up, who's now no longer a Marlin, they tried an experiment to stick him in center field after a career as an infielder, and that did not go well. He had very limited sample size, and it hurt that he didn't hit during that sample either way, but, I mean, this doesn't come as easily to every single different player. Being that they traded to get VR, they didn't sign him as a free agent, they weren't really able to speak with him directly all that much before bringing him in, um, who's to say whether he is fully on board with switching positions? He is now, based on his recent history, he's a good insurance policy at second base. If Isan Diaz's struggles from late last year carry over, if for whatever reason Isan Diaz isn't able to fill his destiny as an everyday second baseman, then you have VR. Or you have Miguel Rojas shift over from shortstop to second base, and you stick VR at shortstop, which is a position that he's comfortable in. If I was a betting man, I would anticipate that VR is going to play more for the Marlins at second base and shortstop than he does at third base in the outfield. That's my feeling about this because you can't simply move these guys around at will and expect it to be successful in every single case. There are, it's, it's somewhat, there's a willingness for certain players to switch positions, but there are also very tangible skills that you need at different positions that can't necessarily be, um, acquired through hard work. Some of it is there are just tangible things that players have and don't have. And the fact that VR has made it this far in his career with such little usage at these positions that the Marlins seem intent on using him at, it makes me very suspicious. Uh, again, my expectation is that if Isan Diaz and Miguel Rojas, if, if they don't, um, there is a situation where a lot of at-bats are going to be available for the Marlins middle infield. And that's where you have this guy like VR to plug those holes in play. The most important thing, of course, is to get his legs into the lineup and to get his bat into the lineup. Coming off a career year at, at the plate where he was well above league average as a hitter, he set a career high with 24 home runs. He's um, If you just get his bat and his legs in the lineup, there's going to be a lot of value there. You just don't want him to negate all those contributions because he's put into uncomfortable spots defensively. The Marlins entered this past week with a filled-up 40-man roster. That means that in order to bring in Jesus Aguilar and Jonathan VR, they had to make two corresponding moves, and that meant getting rid of JT Riddle and Tyrone Guerrero. Uh, Riddle was non-tendered on Monday, right before that non-tendered deadline. He was due a slight raise that the Marlins weren't interested in paying him, and apparently they weren't able to find any trade interest in him. Guerrero was designated for assignment and claimed on Friday by the Chicago White Sox. Riddle's name has already come up a couple times on this podcast, including last week when we were anticipating the non-tender deadline. Uh, it was clear at that point that Riddle didn't fit in the Marlins' future, coming off a season where, at the major league level, a 189 batting average, 230 on base, 371 slugging, just a 54 weighted runs created plus, and he was far below replacement level as an overall player as he was moved off of shortstop, tried to learn center field, and made some good plays at that position, but also botched a lot of very routine situations that made the Marlins very difficult to watch for a big chunk of the 2019 season. He was some of a, somewhat of a poster child for that. Throughout his career, he's had some troubles just simply getting on base. He 
was a very fundamentally sound shortstop that if he was able to hit at all, I think the Marlins uh, were planning on giving him a significant look at shortstop last season. But aside from a couple very brief glimpses, the offense was not there. It was not enough offense to justify starting him with any consistency at any position. And now he's a free agent after being non-tendered. He's a guy that will be entering his age 28 season. And I'm sure there will be some interest in him as a guy that has very decent raw power as a player with his left-handed swing. And there are I, I, there's always some need for depth at the shortstop position. We're at a very rich time in Major League history where there are a bunch of teams that have very desirable players at shortstop position. So he's not a guy that's going to get a guaranteed deal from anybody. He's going to be a minor league signing with an invite to spring training. And if he finds the right fit, uh, potentially you could see him sneak onto an opening day roster. But more likely he'll be playing uh, early next season at the AAA level. Uh, Tyrone Guerrero is a uh, is a more polarizing case, in my opinion. The news came out on Friday that he was claimed by the White Sox. There's that seven-day window between being designated for assignment and when your situation needs to be resolved. So with a few days to go, the Marlins were able to find him a team to claim him. The Marlins get a little bit of a fee from the White Sox. They get paid a little bit for losing him on waivers. Guerrero coming off a very bad season at the major league level, a 6.26 earned run average, 6.06 fielder independent pitching. He he struck out less than 20% of the batters he faced, which is very hard to believe for a guy with his kind of raw stuff. And uh, just like Riddle, he was below replacement level, according to Fangraphs, in his 46 innings pitched at the major league level. Uh, so a polarizing player, as I said, because a lot of the comments that came out after he was claimed, were applauding the White Sox and saying this is a sneaky good move for them. He's a guy in Guerrero that is just a couple tweaks away from unlocking his potential of being a great pitcher. Of course, last year, you know about his fastball velocity. He averaged 99 miles per hour on his fastball and consistently topped 100 miles an hour when he was feeling it on certain nights with uh, Jordan Hicks of the Cardinals being injured injuring his elbow and undergoing Tommy John surgery, uh, Guerrero was, for a time, the hardest thrower in major leagues. So there is a lot of sex appeal to that happening, but he's also going to be entering his age 29 season. And for his career, he's been a below replacement level pitcher in the major leagues. So the reason for that is he his fastball uh, moves pretty straight. It does not have uh, a whole lot of vertical or horizontal life to it that would help you miss bats and he doesn't have a secondary pitch that he trusts he has a slider that he uses about 20 percent of the time and the raw results against the slider uh, especially in 2018 were very good but he doesn't throw it consistently enough and i mean that in two ways one he doesn't throw it often enough but he also doesn't get the grip on it to be right game to game there are some days where he simply doesn't have that pitch at all and isn't able to get it to the plate. So there's a little bit of a disparity in Guerrero's career between his ERA and his FIP. Not so much this past year, but especially in 2018, if you looked under the numbers, you thought, hey, there's a better pitcher in here than the raw run prevention would suggest. My objection to that is that maybe there isn't because he's a guy that just has such extreme control issues. Uh, this past year, issuing almost as many walks as strikeouts. 
um, including some in situations where they simply couldn't afford to put more base runners on base. It's, it's not about any reluctance to throw strikes. It's simply about getting that tall six foot eight frame to move exactly the way he wants to and to repeat his delivery uh, with both pitches, both the fastball and the slider. When you throw as hard as he does, just the, the smallest thing being off in your delivery causes the pitch to go in the wrong direction. And when you have that slider, which has a very big gap differential in velocity between the fastball, um, it can be very difficult to catch. So that's the concern. That's why I think there is somewhat of a disparity between his, his run prevention and his fielder independent numbers. They don't take into account his raw stuff and how difficult it is for a catcher to handle that kind of stuff. He led all Marlins pitchers over the last two years with 17 total wild pitches. Nobody else had more than 12. And this is a guy that worked exclusively out of the bullpen. He missed some time in 2019 with uh, hand injuries, one to his fingernail, one to his actual finger itself. So minor injuries, of course. Um, and he was able to return to action in the Dominican Winter League uh, earlier this offseason. Guerrero is an easy player to root for, very enthusiastic on the field and off of it, a quality teammate while he's with the Marlins. I'm just being realistic with the track record of players in his position that had struggled to this extent this late in their career. Um, the odds are stacked against him ever really getting it together. He can certainly improve on the type of player that he was in 2019, perhaps some of the issues that he had with his fingers were affecting his grips and his commands. Maybe it was about more than just his, his, his arm itself. It was simply about um, not being able to secure the ball the way that he wanted to and that with time off during the offseason, he'll be able to get that sorted out. There are changes that could be made to his delivery that may make it easier to repeat. But to make such a big leap forward to being this frankly, a, a fringy player, someone that at this moment, uh, I wouldn't say is a sure thing to make an opening day roster with with any team because of how much he's struggled against major league hitters. Um, someone that was hit very hard this past season when he wasn't missing as many bats as he wanted to. And when people were making contact, they were getting a very good uh, swings on his pitches and even hitting a handful of them over the fence for a home run. He has such a big distance to go between who he is right now, and the ceiling that people hope that he would have as a hard-throwing reliever. So I'm rooting for the best for him. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think this is a significant loss for the Marlins. There are so many relievers available for them to go after during the winter meetings and beyond. As for the players remaining with the Marlins organization, they're going to have to adjust to pretty dramatic changes for the 2020 season at their home ballpark. As announced by the team this past Wednesday, they have given up on natural grass after eight seasons trying to grow and maintain that stuff in a retractable roof venue. They've decided that it is easier, more cost efficient to install fake grass, artificial turf from Shaw Sports Turf that will go into effect for 2020. It's the same company that installed new turf with Arizona Diamondbacks and Chase Field this past season. Uh, Michael Hill references that in making this announcement, saying that everybody was extremely impressed and comfortable with the surface being used in Arizona and Arizona being another team that plays in a dome. 
and that's why they're trying to bring it to Marlins Park and save money instead of having to water the grass as they've used to do. And uh, one other specific difference is that in order to keep the natural grass alive in Marlins Park, they had to keep the roof open a lot during off days to bring the sun in directly, and that was heating up a lot of the seats in the lower bowl of Marlins Park, and it costs uh, a lot of energy to cool down those seats for the games themselves. Uh, So another aspect of that, they're trying to save money. None of this being reflected in the Marlins payroll, but they believe it is more cost-efficient moving forward and that the the tech being used in this infill, they're calling it a uh, geofill performance infill that is composed 90% of coconut and 10% of naturally derived plant-based matter. There is a layer of sand in between the geofill and the shock pad beneath that that they believe this particular product, because it's already been used in Arizona, that it's comfortable, that it's, it is not the gimmicky type of turf that you may be thinking about when you hear that word brought up. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. They believe this is something that pretty closely replicates the the feel and the effects of playing on natural grass, and they they don't believe it's going to contribute to any extra injuries. Michael Hill also noted that the old Marlins Park with natural grass had a very fast infield where balls were not slowed down much at all by going over that surface. And so they're already somewhat prepared for playing on what is undoubtedly going to be a very fast surface now that they have turf installed. Uh, I would speculate that this is going to be a faster infield than that old one was and that there will be some adjustment, but he tried to downplay that. And I think the bottom line is, and this is stating the obvious, but you want to be playing on a natural grass surface whenever possible. And uh, the organization tried. Um, Honestly, I, I don't remember seeing all that much negative feedback from players last year. It's not like um, the old surface was all that uneven. And cosmetically, it looked fine. I mean, it was pretty clear to see that it, it wasn't a perfectly healthy grass surface. It, it wasn't all that luscious, I would say, compared to other Major League Baseball fields. But it seemed to be an acceptable surface that they've been playing on the past few years. Not all that many severe injuries caused by it, uh, whether to Marlins players or to their opponents. Um, but the bottom line is this was a financial decision pretty clearly in that in that trying to maintain grass in that environment and uh, trying to, in, in everything they were doing behind the scenes to make it work with natural grass um, wasn't, wasn't worth it in their opinion. And so they've invested in what they believe is the best product out there possible to try to help. And hopefully they're right. The decision's already been made, nothing that we can really protest. So I understand people that are upset about it and I'm just pointing out that this was the reality of the situation, that they had tried under previous ownership, and now with a couple of years under new ownership, they had, um, I'm sure they had explored every opportunity to try to keep it natural and to keep it in good shape, 
and ultimately they had to cave on that one one aspect of Marlins Park baseball. The other significant change to the ballpark is going to be closer outfield dimensions in both straightaway center field being brought in from 407 feet to 400 even, and in the deepest part of right center field, used to be 392, but no longer is now being reduced to 387 feet. Uh, For the time being, no immediate plans to add extra seats to fill up those spaces, Um, It doesn't sound like Marlins don't necessarily need more spaces in the ballpark if you've been paying attention to their attendance. Uh, But the process is already underway for digging the trenches where the new fences in those parts of the ballpark are going to be placed and brought in. It sounds like the height of the fences is going to remain the same. This is already the second time since the ballpark opened in 2012 that they've had to make it more hitter-friendly. The first changes took place four years prior, entering the 2016 season. Um, So if you compare the ballpark heading forward into 2020 with the original one, the changes are very dramatic all the way around. Uh, Having said that, um, the difference between the new dimensions and where they played on last season are not quite as significant as you might imagine. Uh, A lot of people bringing up the fact that The Marlins struggled so much offensively last year that even bringing in the fences a few feet would not have made a significant difference. Uh, Based on the research we're able to find via StatCast, uh, those people are are correct that the Marlins only had a handful of balls that um, were kept in the ballpark that you would be able to comfortably predict going out in the new dimensions. Um, I'd say Brian Anderson had the one ball in particular that struck very high up on the 407 foot sign last year and would have been an easy home run given the new changes coming in. Uh, Neil Walker, it was one particular player that had multiple balls uh, towards dead away straight center and right center that should have gone out if you brought in the new dimensions. Uh, The most comprehensive breakdown of all this is from Jordan McPherson of the Miami Herald. So be sure to find his piece from last week if you're so interested in doing so. But ultimately, it's it's not going to be all that dramatic a difference from last year to this year. Uh, Derek Jeter in the press release noted that it brings the dimensions more in line with other major league ballparks. Let me get the exact quote. Um, and yeah, be, um, we made the decision to adjust the distance of the outfield fence, which will now be more in line with the field dimensions you see across many of today's ballparks. However, it's a little more complicated than that at Marlins Park. If you ask any of the players, they'll note that the ball simply does not carry the same way in the atmosphere at Marlins Park as it does in a lot of other places, in higher altitude places or even at other ballparks along the East Coast, that it's just the consistency of the environmental conditions. Um, It keeps balls from going quite as far as you'd otherwise project them to go. Um, Because of these changes... Uh, I think the ballpark will play obviously more friendly to hitters, but don't get too up in arms about it changing the whole identity of the ballpark itself. If the Marlins are able to develop the players as we're hoping they do, they're able to graduate all these top prospects into being major league players, that the talent is going to win out at the end of the day. And these features are something to get adjusted to. You want to have a home field advantage. You want to have unique aspects of your ballpark that your fielders are more comfortable with than opposing fielders are, those opportunities are still going to be there. It's still a unique venue, just not as extreme 
um, when it comes to suppressing run scoring, and I'm fine with that. I can't really fake any sort of overreaction one way or another because I don't think the difference is going to be all that extreme one way or the other. It's going to be more about the talent dictating the outcome of these games than the literal dimensions. We wrap up this episode by preparing you for what's about to go down during the MLB winter meetings in San Diego. All the big Marlins decision makers, they're already checked into their hotels, reserving it for four nights, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Unofficially, the winter meetings wrap up on Thursday morning with the Rule 5 draft. Um, In a good year, you see a lot of blockbuster decisions made during this stretch of time. For the Marlins, they still have some very obvious areas of need, um, particularly with their bullpen coming off a year where they had some of the worst production from their relief pitchers. And that production was buoyed a little bit early in the year by Sergio Romo and Nick Anderson, both of whom were traded. Uh, Sergio Romo happens to be a guy that, as reported by John Heyman, he is moving close to his free agent decision. He finished the year with the Twins and performed very well. And now heading into his age 37 season, he's uh, looking for one big opportunity to cash in potentially on a two-year deal. And the Marlins have not been directly connected to him yet, but he is one guy that could be coming off the board this week. And he obviously fits a need for the team as a guy that was very well liked in the organization last year. Regardless, the Marlins probably need a couple such players signs to be brought in Otherwise, they're leaning way too much on internal options, including some of whom have never relieved at the major league level before. And uh, while it'll be nice to see those guys get their opportunities later in the year, whether it's George Guzman or Tommy Eveld, maybe even Alex Vesia um, makes a big surge later in the year, they have a lot of intriguing arms that would be able to produce in a late-ending role, uh, potentially, but it's always better to go with a guy that has some track record in the later innings. That's what fans can really trust, someone that has a track record, uh, a name that has been able to they can identify with, and someone that won't be intimidated by pitching high-leverage situations in major league games. Uh, a lot of the best relievers in this free agent class have already come off the board, so I'd be curious to see what the Marlins do. They have not indulged in free agents yet, Again, acquiring Jesus Aguilar via waiver claim and Jonathan VR via trade, it's an important test for them to actually get an impactful major league relief pitcher to want to join their organization at this moment in time where they're coming off um, such a poor 2019 season. But right up there with the bullpen, the Marlins do have at-bats available in their outfield. At fishstripes.com, we had this big series called Deep Sea Fishing, looking at a lot of significant free agent targets, um, but most notably in the outfield where the Marlins have struggled to perform the past couple years, and a couple notables being Nicholas Castellanos and Avisel Garcia, both guys coming off decent years. Castellanos finishing very strong last year with the Cubs and being a native of South Florida. Avisel Garcia makes his offseason home in South Florida. Um, regardless, I think the Marlins will be focusing on short-term deals um, for these type of guys because they do have a surplus of quality outfield prospects in their pipeline due to arrive either later in 2020 or in 2021. Um, 
there's so you're not necessarily getting a better player long term in this free agent group than you already have internally but at least for this coming year it would be an easy upgrade to invest in any of the handful of players that are out there on the market and the Marlins did add some salary to their payroll already by acquiring Jesus Aguilar and Jonathan VR but as it's projected right now I want to be very clear that the Marlins even with their recent additions they are projected to have the lowest payroll in the National League and I don't think fans should put up with that and find it acceptable it's there are easy ways to continue improving this roster via free agency and that's what I think we should expect the team to do if they want a team that is dramatically better than last year and they want fans to invest their time and money in supporting the team then you put together a deep versatile roster they've made important steps towards doing that but there's still a lot of heavy lifting to go, and this winter meetings is an easy opportunity to do that. Uh, another position of need for this Marlins team heading into next year will be at catcher behind Jorge Alfaro, who's coming off a solid year, but the team just has no catching depth whatsoever in the high levels of the minor leagues. And um, with Brian Holiday leaving, electing free agency, they have a need at that position as well. I won't dwell on that too much here because that's something that can certainly be addressed later in the offseason, not necessarily at the winter meetings. If the Marlins do, in fact, make a move during these winter meetings, a significant trade involving incoming or outgoing prospects, uh, something that improves their major league roster like a Jonathan VR situation, or if they strike any guaranteed major league deal with a free agent, we'll react to that on the pod. We have emergency podcasts. Um... On standby, if the Marlins do make any of these significant moves, as much as I like doing these pods myself from time to time, it's even better when I have Fish Stripe staff members joining me. Several of them are on standby to come on the pod and help us react to whatever happens out there in San Diego. We're going to be there for you uh, with covering all the rumors each day on fishstripes.com, putting other moves that other teams make in perspective that may affect the Marlins indirectly one way or the other. We're going to have those different angles covered on the site, uh, tweeting out updates on our Twitter account, and make sure you're following all the significant uh, reporters as well at the national level and also on the local level. It's going to be a lot of fun. And even if it's all just speculation, even if it's a lot of noise that doesn't amount to anything immediately, um, this is one of the high points in the entire Marlins offseason. Thankfully, the team has gotten a nice head start on most of the other teams in terms of improving their roster for 2020. But this is where they make their big splash. It This is where they give you a product that fans can finally be proud of for the first time in several years. I'm Eli Sussman. Go Fish! Go Fish!